Section number 15 of Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages by David Byrne. Frobert the Simple. 1. At Home. Frobert's mother was blind, but for her consolation God sent her Frobert, a child of gentleness and compassionateness. Scarcely could a mother have loved more tenderly. Eyes to the blind, indeed, was Frobert, and a foot to the lame. That this good mother should receive her sight was the daily prayer of the child. Than this he had no other temporal blessing to ask of heaven. He was not as other children. By nature he was gentle and loving, and his mother's affliction had kept him by her side, making him thoughtful beyond his years, and causing him to move about gently, to speak softly, making him prayerful too, beyond the wont of children who have lately come to the use of reason, and the prayerfulness made him holy. So Frobert lived his child life devoted to his mother for her own sake and for God's sake, devoted to God above all things. It was no wonder that he shrank from the rough play of the street and that he cared so little for what gives pleasure to the average child. In the eyes of the boisterous and the rough he was a simpleton. They did not understand that nature, and the circumstances of his life had made him gentle and gracious, and that grace acting upon nature had made him saintly. To the rough and the rude he was Frobert the simpleton, to his poor blind mother he was the very joy of life. He lived in the lone west country of France, where the mountains of the Vosges begin their formidable range, and where the heavy snows of winter are now followed with a wealth of wild cherry blossom that keeps the hills white with flowers when they cease to be white with snow and he lived in the far-off times of the seventh century when england had just been converted and when our country had no church or religious house comparable with the abbey of luxeuil which was the glory of the neighborhood in which frobert lived a wild period it certainly was although the light of faith was burning brightly enough in western france a wild country too where the winter lasted long and the wolves ran through the streets of the little towns at the foot of the vosges a perilous journey was it to the bishop's school sometimes an impossible one but for all his gentleness the boy was hardy and courageous a perilous journey was it to the bishop's school sometimes an impossible one but for all his gentleness the boy was hardy and courageous, and indeed his goodness and purity made him brave. An apt scholar, too, he showed himself with a special taste for all holy learning 
and a very marked preference for the sacred books. Doubtless, even as a young boy, the Bishop of Troyes had heard of his goodness and his dogged application to his work, for it was to the prelate's own school that Frobert was sent. But to leave the poor blind mother day by day was a sore trial to the boy, and he determined that if earnest and persistent prayer could bring about a miracle, as indeed it had often done, that prayer should not be wanting. So day by day Frobert applied himself to his work with all the energy he possessed. Day by day he implored the good God to look with pity upon his mother's affliction and to restore her sight. For how long he prayed, we are not told. But on a day never to be forgotten, while he was standing by the loving woman's side receiving the motherly caresses she so often bestowed upon him, suddenly he threw his arms about her and tenderly kissed her sightless eyes. Then, full of confidence in the power and pity of Jesus Christ, who once gave sight to the blind, Frobert made the sign of the cross on his mother's eyes, in a paroxysm of prayer, implored the help of heaven. The petition of this pure-souled child was heard. His mother received her sight. Frobert was the holy child of a holy mother. What could she offer to God in thanksgiving for one of the greatest temporal favors it is possible for a human being to receive? Well, just at that particular time, God asked for no great sacrifice in return. The day came, however, when he demanded nothing less than the son she loved so fondly. For, as time went on, it became more and more clear that Frobert had a call to the life of religion. No greater sacrifice could have been asked of this good mother, a woman poor in this world's goods, and, as far as we know, having no other son to work for her, yet freely and generously she gave her child to God. 2. In the Cloister So the doors of the great abbey of Luxil were opened to Frobert still a boy of tender years. Both for mother and son the wrench was a terrible one. Frobert had need now for all the courage which is ever the outcome of genuine piety. He had left a poor but very happy home and a mother who lived him tenderly, to live in a great monastery where there were six hundred monks, besides a great band of boy pupils chiefly the sons of French nobles. Founded only some thirty years ago or before the birth of Frobert by that amazing and intrepid Irish missionary St. Columban, the Abbey of Luxil was at this time the very head and centre of all intellectual life in France. It was protected by her kings and it gave the church her bishops. From its walls went forth many a band of holy monks to preach the faith in dark and savage places, and many were the religious houses that sprang from it and followed the Columban rule. Not less than 105 monasteries were founded by the disciples of St. Columban in France 
Germany, Switzerland, and Italy. Beautiful and holy as the life was in Luxel, we can well understand the bewilderment of Frobert when he first found himself walking its crowded cloisters. Though he had done well at the bishop's school and gave promise of becoming a scholar, he seemed to have entered this severe order as a lay brother. Severe indeed was the rule as laid down by St. Columban, but this great man had passed away, and the existing abbot appears to have been as kind and sympathetic as he was zealous and holy. Yet the young novice must have shuddered when he heard of the painful penances accepted by his brothers what seemed to us very trifling faults. The six lashes inflicted upon those who did not answer amen at grace, the same for talking in the refractory or for smiling in church, the fifty lashes for such greater faults as willful disobedience and insubordination. Nay, there were offences for which the penance was two hundred strokes, and it would be slight consolation to a boy to know that only twenty-five were ever administered at one time. But we must remember that St. Columban had had to deal with a great body of men, many of whom were barely civilized, men who had everything to unlearn and much to learn, nor must we forget that we are reading of a period more than three hundred years before the Norman conquest. The marvel is that so many of these monks were such holy and learned men that they were both there is abundant and clear historical proof. But we need not be surprised if we find that there was a brother here and there not quite so thoughtful and considerate as we might expect a monk to be. Frobert was simple with the beautiful simplicity that belongs to some characters, and which seems to have very little to do with the absence of intelligence. He was one of those lovable people that men are inclined to laugh at, not by any means in an unkindly way, but because their sense of humor is greater than that of their victim. Sometimes, indeed, the laughter is altogether a kindly nature and, like Dickens' delightful Tom Pinch, the person who provoked it is greatly loved. Frobert was, in some respects, a Tom Pinch of the seventh century. To begin with, he was very ignorant of the world of men, and never suspected that there were people who would take advantage of his ignorance. Even the world of the cloister was to him a new and surprising world, and he saw and heard of many things, the very names of which he did not know. Perhaps he had already made some amusing mistakes, and was getting a reputation for the comical little errors that provoke laughter. Anyhow, he was one day made the subject of a very thoughtless, practical joke. There was a visitor in the abbey at that time, a certain religious man named Tudolin, who had come to Luxil for purposes of study, and Brother Forbear was appointed to attend upon him. The goodness of his young servant was, no doubt, fully appreciated by the stranger, yet he could not 
or rather did not resist the temptation to have a little fun at Frobert's expense. Perhaps we shall be inclined to smile when we are told that Frobert did not know a pair of compasses when he saw them. But again, we must remember the period and the fact that the school apparatus of the time was very primitive. Tudolin then sent the boy to another monk to ask for a pair of compasses, and the brother to whom the novice was sent, suspecting the nature of the errand, took up a couple of stones from a handmill that was lying near and put them round Frobert's neck. Obediently enough, the boy tried to carry the compasses to Tudolin's cell, though the weight of them was almost more than he could support. Staggering along the cloister and trying to ease the weight upon his neck by holding the stones in his hands, Frobert suddenly came face to face with his abbot. In sheer compassion the superior stopped to ask the lad where he was going. Very simply, Frobert explained that he was taking a pair of compasses to the visitor, who wanted them for literary purposes. Removing the millstones from the boy's neck, the abbot burst into tears, grieved to the heart that the simple lad should have been made a fool of by those who had every opportunity of knowing his goodness. The rebuke administered to Tudolin and the other monk was a sharp one, and it is very unlikely that they ever played any other practical joke upon Frobert. But in spite of this little matter and the undoubted hardness of the life, the young novice was entirely happy, for he possessed within himself the secret of happiness, a pure heart and a clear conscience. Moreover, he knew that he had been called to this holy state of life and that he was doing the will of God in all things. 3. At the Bishop's House Being beloved to God, it was necessary that Frobert should be tried, and the trial came to him in a particularly unwelcome form. How long he had been at the Abbey, when his old friend the Bishop of Troyes called him from the cloister. We are not told, but we may be sure that the boy had finished the term of his noviceship, and he was looking forward to a peaceful, if toilsome, life within the dearly loved walls of Luxil. But the good Bishop had not forgotten the gentle and modest little lad who had once sat in the cathedral school. The prelate liked to have holy people about him. Moreover, he saw great possibilities in this young peasant boy. So, much as it cost him, Frobert willingly obeyed and passed from the peaceful cloister to the house of the bishop in the city of Troyes. But he did not cease to live as a monk. Hard as he found it to keep his rule and to follow the daily practices of the dear order, amid his new surroundings, he relaxed nothing in the austere mode of living. Prescribed by St. The bishop's servants did not approve of his austerities, and when Lent came and Frobert ate nothing until after sunset, they became downright angry. 
Then some of them started a story that the young monk was a humbug and that his pretense of fasting till evening was all nonsense. They said this to the bishop, adding that Brother Frobert kept a supply of food in his chamber and ate secretly. Probably the bishop did not believe them, but he thought it only right to submit Frobert to some little test. So, to the lad's surprise, his lordship told him that he could change his room and move into a little cell in the cathedral tower. Frobert was delighted, for he was now somewhat nearer to God's altar, and the tower chamber, though rather cold and desolate, was very quiet and peaceful. But he could not for some time understand why the bishop so constantly looked in upon him, at meal times, for example, and indeed at all sorts of extraordinary hours. However, his lordship was soon satisfied that Frobert had no store of provisions, and that his Lenten fast was no pretense. So somewhat to his regret, Frobert left his chamber in the tower, only to find that the bishop wished him to prepare himself for sacred orders. 4. In After Years Robert's great wish was to be hidden and unknown, but it seems as though the more he withdrew himself from public life, the more he was sought after. He could not even escape the notice of the emperor. Not only in the city of Troyes, but throughout the land the fame of his holiness and his miracles began to spread. The good bishop soon saw that Almighty God had some great work for the young monk to do. This work was nothing less than founding of a new monastery. On land given to him for the purpose by Clovis II, Frobert built the famous monastery La Salle. Thus the monk, who had once been regarded as a simpleton, became one of the most remarkable abbots of his time, and ruled a community largely made up of scholars. For many long years he lived a holy and happy life at Lacelle, spending his last days in the building of a handsome church. His strength seems to have lasted as long as the church was in progress. When it was finished, he knew that he had not long to live. It was near Christmas, and the abbot's great desire was to see the church consecrated on the Feast of the Nativity but the bishop could not well leave his cathedral on so great a day, and Frobert prayed earnestly that his life might be prolonged until the octave day of Christmas. His prayer was answered. When on the 1st of January the building had been solemnly dedicated to God, quietly and happily the abbot passed away. End of section 15 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen Vancouver, B.C.